Hey everybody, my name is Drew Baker. Welcome to The Brutal Podcast. On this show, I interview progressive winemakers, chefs, farmers, and other interesting people at my kitchen table. On today's episode, I interview Andrew Jones, winemaker and owner of Field Recordings in California. Field Recordings strives to make unique wines loaded with personality from diamonds in the rough. That is vineyard sites that are unknown or underappreciated but hold enormous untapped potential. All right, the stable is set. Andrew Jones in the house. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining me on a on a drip. Well, I don't know what what the weather's like. I can't tell if that's a real background I'm looking at here or. It actually, is uh yeah. I've been doing the the, uh, the Zoom stuff from uh, a little like patio or balcony thing outside my bedroom window. That's okay. So I'm in Los Osos right now. About you know, 10 minutes outside of San Luis Obispo and 40 minutes from Paso Robles. Okay. Uh, and that's I go home you? to the fog and to the beach every day. So, um, we're, I'm about, uh, four or five miles from the Pacific ocean, I guess. Okay. So yeah. how long have you lived there? I've lived here since 20, um, 2014. I moved in. So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a good spot. I like not living in Paso. Nothing against Paso, but it's good to like leave. You know, like I can. I got four little kids, so yeah, going out to dinner, don't have to worry about like running into uh, somebody from work with the wolf pack that's destroying a restaurant or anything like that. That's awesome. Uh, you have four kids. What are their ages? Uh, ten, eight, six, and four. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, you put your hands full. All about two years apart. My wife really wanted a daughter, and I agreed to go along for four tries. And she got lucky; she got the girl on the fourth try. So nice. <laughs> uh, but uh, so you're yeah. officially done then. Yes, you've, you've fulfilled your duties. Yep. <laughs> it would have allowed me to uh, go see the doctor before the fourth one came out. I would have. Right. So, yeah. That's uh, cool. Yeah, I have a uh, two and a half year old, a two and a half year old daughter. And a oh eight month an eight 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 month old son. So okay, cool. Um, following in your footsteps, I guess you could say. <laughs> are you done, or is it going to be two, or are you going to keep going? I I mean, we're not done. Okay. Yeah, we're not done. Um, I you know I I promised my wife that I would go until it sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so far, both kids so far have been uh, have been easygoing and just you know really good experiences so at cool. whatever point that you know shifts then that's yeah it. <laughs> so, uh, but, but my wife has always wanted to have more so cool more we shall have what? yeah <laughs> uh, it's 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 all her choice oh i mean yeah i always joke about it with uh yeah whatever she's in for you know i'll, I'll go along with it right know. on that's cool um so in the introduction, uh, I, I kind of gave the pitch about field recordings and uh, definitely want to hear all about that. But I um, was was hesitant to sort of, um, you know, paint you in such a narrow corner, which is sort of one wine brand, because, um, you know, I've known you from afar for some time. And uh, it, it, it seems to me that you've always been one to have your hand in lots of projects and uh, so I, I think it'll be cool to, um, if you're interested, to kind of explore, you know, the totality of what you're about uh, on the show, if you're game for something like that. 
Yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, it was like one thing led to another and it added up into having like, I guess, a little someone like portfolio or whatever you could say. But um, yeah, so I started 13 years ago, field recordings. Really, actually, should go back. I started 19 years ago. This is my 19th season for the Grapevine Nursery work. So I started working for Sunridge Nurseries while I was still in college um, in 2003, or like at the end of 02, starting 03. Um, and uh, um, so Wholesale Grapevine Nursery located in Bakersfield. Uh, the uh, um, I guess we're the largest like grapevine only nursery in the U.S. But started as our Central Coast field rep and all that, and uh, started. Uh, I had messed around making wine in college and stuff like that, and um, sort of was noticing every year that I was dealing with more uh, winemakers versus the vineyard managers when I was putting in new vineyards. So thought it might be a good idea to learn more about the winemaking process and make some wine and just have something to kind of kill time during the fall when there wasn't anything. Uh, going on so I, I mean technically I still make wine on the side um, and uh, um, so then started field recordings 13 years ago um, wanted to tell kind of I used to say I was tell the stories of my days on the road like people I met places I found in my travels with planting new vineyards and uh, <clears throat> capture that in a bottle tell that story in a bottle that's how we got um, a buddy of mine Josh actually introduced me to the concept of field recordings and um, kind of you know got me going down that path with uh um you know people place and time capturing a bottle or recording of a natural occurrence which essentially we have with uh with every vintage so yeah so i started that and then started out my first year did four tons um i did and what year was that that was 2007 okay and so i did uh um two tons of shannon blanc from jurassic park in santa barbara which i always say that was like my first wine it kind of sums up the project the best like Old Vine Shannon planted in the 70s, um, you know, somewhat abandoned by the vineyard owner. I mean, it, it was like, I just didn't say abandoned, like they were farming and everything, but it wasn't like the every year when they're going to figure out their like big capital expenditures for the year, like they're not putting more money into that block and replanting it. And, um, it was bare minimal farming and all that kind of stuff. So started with that. Uh, and uh, I think we were like, the first getting Shannon from that in this like new wave of Shannon um, before it's so uh, had you set your mind to make wine and then found that block or did you find that block and know that you wanted to make wine? And was that sort of part of your inspiration? I like uh, high acid whites and that was, I was like trying to figure out and especially coming from past Robles, like, you know, I, I'm, they can be really great wines, but I'm not a huge fan of like the white Rhones and like that heavier, flabbier white wines, um, which is kind of funny though, because I do like um, like classic uh, bigger Chardonnay, but like when it gets into what like Roussan and Marsan and that kind of stuff, like the wines, that they gets like too heavy for the white wines for me. Um, and so like I was trying to, I was actually thinking of like some, uh, um, you know, I was looking for a high acid food friendly white wine um, and was kind of going back and forth between like it could do like odd varieties, some of them like experimental stuff or whatever. And I actually remember I was I was sitting having dinner. I was hanging at the bar at Via Creek, this old restaurant in Paso. And uh, um, I remember actually uh, uh, Chris Cherry, the owner of Via Creek, like brought up like, what about Shannon? Whatever, and, you know, and kind of Shannon, you know, it sounds like a good idea and like trying to track down Shannon and 
all that. And yeah, so, you know, knew about Jurassic from a client of mine from the nursery. And, you know, that uh, the first year it was like, yeah, you want two tons, like go pick which row you want us to pick it from. And, you know, the rest was all getting uh, machined after to go into the Firestone uh, Chardonnay program for topping line or whatever back they did back then. Um, I, to my knowledge, I think it was all used for, back in those days, they used it to like round out the, uh, the shard program at Firestone. Um, so yeah, that, and then, um, another buddy of mine has this, uh, petite Syrah that was planted in the late fifties out east of Paso. Um, so I had a ton of that. Um, and then, uh, I did this like one ton field blend that was from, a guy was kind of my mentor in the business that was retiring from the grapevine nursery when I was getting out of college. Um, Jeff Collegian, and he did a vineyard on the west side of Paso where it was these 12 terraces and like by where he put them on the field on the hill and everything like he basically made it so like and he farmed it away so that all the varieties picked at once so we would pick um, Cab Sauve, uh, Petit Verdot, um, Cabernet Franc and Tanat all together. The Tanat was a late addition. He had uh, some Merlot and some Malbec that he wasn't happy with. So he actually drafted those over to Tanat and then we picked all of it all together, but it was like this true field blend. Um, so those were the first three wines that started with. And, uh, um, so yeah, that was 07. And then, um, yeah, I just kind of kept adding to stuff here and there through the years. I got into working with stuff in Santa Barbara. I'm a big fan of Santa Barbara grapes. Like there's so much more that Santa Barbara has to offer than, being sideways country um so it started that and then um so the real thing that kind of changed everything was when i was getting ready to get my i got a cool story actually about how um the one thing kind of happened so 2012 i had sort of graduated from custom crush facilities i had rented space since 07 at two different custom crush places um and it was i had gotten to a point where all i had to do was go buy a forklift and i was totally self-sufficient and uh, um, needed to get a warehouse. So I, I found a spot to do my own winery. It was in this commercial complex. Uh, and the building I was going to take was a duplex. And I was only going to take half of the duplex. And it was, in 20, it was in 2012. Things were just coming out of the 2010 recession and all that. And I was starting to see, like, the Cabernet boom and the shortage of Paso Cab out there. And um, so I actually <laughs> – I had a, a vineyard that had been worked with called Hinterland Vineyard. It's in the river bottom in Paso. It, it's kind of a rough looking vineyard, but it's just Pretty cool name, magic spot. Um, and uh, so um, I told the Saran brothers who were uh, friends of mine that uh, took the vineyard over from the bank. The previous owners had lost it to the bank and they had taken it over. And um, it's like, well, Suki, I'll just take, I, I told Suki, I would just, I'll buy the whole thing. And uh, just make it easier for him. He doesn't have to do a bunch of buyers. Like, I'll just take it all. And then I, I ran the math on it. And I was like, I think for what I was getting the fruit for and with the way that the cab market was trending, um, that uh, I could get the grapes, make the wine, and flip it as bulk wine to another winery in town uh, and basically pay for the rent for the other half of the duplex that I was going to rent. Cause I, I didn't need both sides of the duplex, but I, um, I was like, I know at some point I'm going to want to have all of that. So instead of just taking the 2,500 square foot, I wanted the, yeah. And so that year I did extra, like I basically speculated on, um, 
two truckloads. It was an extra hundred. It was, well, it was two truckloads of each variety. So 50 tons of Merlot and 50 tons of cab. And that was the only thing too, is like the, the, I knew I could make it pencil on the cab, but I didn't know if I could make it pencil on the Merlot. And, uh, I just needed to make sure I could sell the Merlot for like break even essentially. And, uh, yeah, I flipped the wine and, uh, was able to actually pay for the rent for my building that year. So I get the whole thing, which turned into like some industry hustling right there. It was, it was uh, like luck, I, you know, went for it. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it all like, yeah, total luck on the whole thing. And, um, but I probably saw this shortage coming because you're on the other side selling grapevines to winemakers. So you're talking with winemakers every day that are like, Hey, I need to get more cab in the ground now because I'm looking three years out and we've got mad shortages coming. So immediately you're looking around and you're like, all right, who's got the solution and doesn't even know it. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's one of those things like it always like, uh, you know, got a good handle on the supply chain. So uh, yeah, so we went went for it on that and uh, got lucky. And uh, um, I kept, but so the thing though on that, so 2012 was a big year because I got my own building for the first time. Um, and then I did the the flip on the cab and the Merlot. Um, I kept, and then also those still things were a little bit rough and um, there was also a little so I ended up actually buying some Pinot to try out that year as well. And so I basically introduced like my value tier of wines that year. So, um, the, uh, we did, I kept 20 barrels back of cab that I didn't sell. Right. Uh, and that those 20 barrels got, um, my buddy, Kurt Shacklin has his own winery, Sans Liege. We both they kind of had an afternoon meeting for something. And I was talking about how I was looking at, doing like a value Cabernet. And, um, so, uh, Kurt was like, actually, you know, like I doing the same thing. Like I, you know, I have these 10 barrels of Cabernet. I was going to do the same thing, kind of mess around with it. He, he at the time was talking to a potential consulting or was talking to a potential client for a consulting game that was going to be a, a cab project. And he was like, Oh, he makes Grenache mostly. I'm like, oh, I better learn how to make cab a little bit more. So Kurt did a little bit of like speculating on some stuff. I had my stuff from my bulk wine flip. Um, and then uh, we put that together and that's what became the Fabulous Wine Company. So Kurt and I do that still. Fabulous Wine Company does, we focus on the classics. Our biggest thing is we do Cabernet, we do um, Zinfandel, we do Merlot, Chard, and Pinot Noir. Um, we do a few other things with it, but I, it's basically a five wine brand and we do like the, try to do the best bang for the buck, um, like a noble variety wine that we can make. Um, and so that was the, uh, um, the first year of it. And then, so I had that. And then, um, also that year with that Pinot, I decided to do like a side label for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay called Wonderwall. Um, and so that was the start of Wonderwall was my first year of Pinot in 2012. And then also with 2012 vintage was the year I decided to can fiction red for the first time. So I did value price cab, value price Pinot and can wine all came out in 2013 from that 2012 harvest. And like from there on, it was like a nuts roller coaster of things that I 
didn't realize I was getting myself into. So, but that was when they for making like odd varieties and like weird field blends and all that stuff to come to market with something that is 1999 and says Cabernet on it or Pinot Noir on it. And then to do the whole can nuttiness, um, was, uh, it was a good time. So from yeah, 2012 harvest through the end of 13 was a pretty crazy year. For sure. So, um, to, I, I, um, have an affinity for taking on too much myself at times. So I uh, appreciate and resonate with that. Um, what, what was your, what was your team like at that point? I, I, so, I imagine that you probably needed to like figure out like who your people were in some of those moments, right? Yeah. So in 2012, we had, um, I had these two cousins that worked for me, Marcelino and James and like, and I had one other guy, Tim that worked for me in the cellar. Um, um, different Tim than works with me now. Um, and it was basically like the three of us. And the one thing that was like, um, Marcelino, he was a hustler too. Like he worked a night shift at Rancho Sisquoc down the San Maria Valley. And then he worked days for me. And then he'd like go home. Like he, we had a thing where he worked like six to two and then he'd go home, take like a three or four hour nap and then had to be at Sisquoc for night shift like nine o'clock at night. Um, it was nuts. And, um, and then his cousin James was ready to like move out of LA and he came up and he was working for, and it was just the four of us. And then we had an intern that year too. And the intern was classic. It was, uh, um, uh, Justin James, his dad, uh, Toby is it's Tobin James, like an old Paso brand. Um, I think Justin was like barely 21 and he wanted to work too. So we had Justin in there. He was a classic character. Um, but yeah, like and from there, it's like where we're at now. Like we used to do, um, so there was an article in the New York Times not so long ago about, um, oh, it's uh, um, Southhold uh, Farm there that was on Long Island and it was about them in Long Island. And they had a thing about like, because they had that like farm shack or their their like shop building that was their winery that they never really were to get permitted. And that's why they moved to Texas. Or something. I, I don't. Know, they, were, they were featured in the New York Times though. This one, and there was a um, a thing he he was quoted in there saying about how he like fermented everything outside. And he had no temperature control through any of anything, and uh, it was like a part of it. Like this wine is, you know, fully in the elements from the start, from the day that it's picked, and everything. And my neighbor Brian Cerisi, who does uh, Giornata wines and broadside and stuff, he came over because he used to give me so much grief because we'd have fermenters in the parking lot. And it was just, we didn't have anywhere to put them. And then it got to a point where like we would go stack them inside at night and then unstack them and put them back out in the parking lot. And they're like, no one comes down here. This was before Tin City had turned into like a having retail business or people coming down to the area. And uh, we would just, we just started leaving the fermenters out in the parking lot. And it was just like, you know, the plastic Macrobin 48s, bed sheets hanging, hanging over them. And like, we just had it all spread through the parking lot. Um, you know, and, uh, it just looked like a gypsy market. Oh, it was, uh, um, it was horrible. So oops, my uh, daughter is decided to come out and surprise me. So <laughs> I forgot to close the door to my bedroom. Hey, Marta, can you go back downstairs? No. Okay. <laughs> I, here. I love well, it. Uh, so I, I, uh, I scheduled us to start at nine o'clock. Hello. How are you? I'm going to get, uh, can we take one, we'll take a quick break and I'll have get Marlo back downstairs. Cause, uh, she is a, she's notorious for, uh, yeah, no, I, 
Uh, I, I start this at nine o'clock at night right after I get mine to bed, but I realize it's only <laughs> 6 30 your time. So yeah, let's take two. Here, one, one sec. So, all right, Mama, gotta go downstairs. Let's go. <laughs> no worries, man. I get it. Having growing up with four or uh, raising four kids under 10. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, there, right when the, like the zoom started doing the zoom thing, when uh shelter in place stuff and started all that, we had a, um, we we're doing like an Instagram live for the winery and Marlo completely crashed the whole thing. It turned into basically a Marlo show. Yeah. She, she's really changed the dynamic of the family after being an all boys household to then, uh, um, having when, when Marlo showed up, absolute. Yeah. She just runs the show now. <laughs> oh yeah. She totally runs the show. That's awesome. Yeah, no, the Zoom thing's not too bad, right? It's like some of the trips that you were going to take. It's like I can hop on a Zoom call 20 minutes here and there and knock it all out. Yep. Uh, um, it's pretty amazing on some of like the retail stuff we've done and all that and like uh, connecting with tasters and instead of standing in their tasting bar for a couple hours, we just knock it out over an hour, hour and a half on the Zoom with everyone. Yeah, yeah so. So um, I, I was hoping we could uh, uh, rewind the tape a little bit. We've kind of yeah. got like, right into sort of like what Field Recordings is and like how you got to where you are as a wine brand. But like, I'm super curious, like how, like where you went to school, like how you landed at Sunridge. Like, tell me about like how, like your origin story and like how you got into wine originally. Yeah. So no, um, no wine background whatsoever. Um, I uh, um, I grew up in uh, Ventura County, California, down uh, Southern California, um, a, uh, kind of the last like suburb area to the north of LA. Um, I uh, didn't, yeah, I didn't come from a wine household at all. Like, if there was anything around our house, it was uh, spirits. Um, I had an uncle that was a, uh, a marketing brand manager for Allied Domecq, and like. Uh, so it was his brands would be around the house. He did Stoli Vodka, Maker's Mark. Um, what was the other ones? Cuervo Tequila, um, Beef Eater Gin. Uh, so yeah, if there was if there was going to be alcohol around the house, uh, it was stuff that my uncle did marketing and promotion for for uh, for our, you know the big corporate uh, liquor conglomerates. Um, I remember the, actually the one wine that was around when I was a kid because. Uh, you know, in the nineties, there was a, a bit when like his varietal Chardonnay started taking off and, uh, um, it was, uh, Clos de Bois Chardonnay when, when it was on, on the rise. Cause that Ally Domecq owned that brand at the time. And, uh, so I, I remember that, like it was instead of my uncle pouring cocktails and stuff for everybody, he was pouring Chardonnay for I'm all. I'm a wine guy now. Yeah. It was like, this is our new thing. We got uh Clos de Bois. It's, uh, you know, everybody's into this, like, you know, creamy semi-sweet uh, shard so um yeah so that was that was the only thing really around i uh so i um grew up as football player and golfer were my two sports kind of random uh random mix of things and uh um football i ended up uh getting a football scholarship to cal poly san Luis Obispo, um and that's how i ended up in slow i like and then Cal Poly San Luis Obispo is one of those schools that makes you declare a major going in. And, uh, um, literally like 18 year old meathead thought at the time was like, I'm going to do ag business. So it'll be a little more specialized than a regular business degree. And I'd actually worked at a golf course growing up, um, in that in Ventura County area that, um, we had a lot of members that were strawberry farmers. 
and that's the kind of the main uh, um, agricultural crop down in that area is strawberries. And uh, I, those hours work real, well for me. Like the ag works really well for the golf lifestyle because, you know, I, like my work day a lot of times is, you know, 5 a.m. to 1 or 2 p.m. And then you got the afternoon to go hit balls or, you know, that, that was like um, what all the berry guys used to do when I was, you know, growing up and stuff. Um, and so I like that lifestyle. You were like, hey, I could do that. Oh, yeah. Like I'll get up. I'll, you know, I can tell me what time to start. Like I'm, I'm ready to go. And, uh, um, and I like, like getting done early and having the rest of the afternoon to myself. So, um, so yeah, agriculture seemed to appeal at the time. And then, uh, I really wanted to figure out a career where I could stay along the central coast during that Ventura, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo County area. And, uh, um, yeah, then, you know, the ag business degree was basically, uh, I, I essentially, uh, got the business degree, but, I set myself up to have to take ag science classes for all my elective fun classes. So um, viticulture seemed like a lot better option than poultry management or dairy science or any of those. And so that's where I got into viticulture. And um, yeah, like one thing led to another. It was always like, um, yeah, this seems like a good idea and like a good fit and then kind of went with it and rolled with it and all that. And um, and so then yeah, I got hired um with, uh, I got hired at the beginning of my fifth year of school. I was, uh, on the five year program at, uh, Poly. And, um, so I started working for the nursery in January of 03, um, while I had two quarters off at school and then went full time. I took two weeks off and then I started again the Monday after, uh, 4th of July in 03, like full time and only real job I've ever had in my life. So, um, but That's yeah, awesome. it was like, yeah, one thing led to another and, so what was your original role there? Uh, Central Coast field rep. So I just dealt with growers on the Central Coast. Um, and then, so that would have been in you know, 03. And then I would say in like 8, 9, or 10-ish, I started going to San Joaquin Valley. Um, they wanted some fresh blood to San Joaquin Valley. Vineyard biz is very old school. Um, there's not a lot of like, you know, the, the families that have been doing it. I mean, it's still a trip that like, you know, some of your big brands that are, I mean, huge corporate massive wineries, but they still operate like, you know, like kind of old fashioned family businesses. Um, so going over there to take care of a few accounts in the Valley. And then that got given to me as a, as a full territory. So I used to do this loop. I, I call it the super loop. And, uh, cause I had some customers that were statewide. And so I would either, leave San Luis Obispo in the morning and I'd work my way up Monterey up to Napa and then over to Lodi and then back down to Fresno and then back home. And I'd always spend the night either like in Southern Napa or over in Lodi for the night and then make my way back. Or I'd go. Yeah, it was a two day loop, work my way North and then, then head back. And, uh, um, those are some, some fun years. Um, racked up a lot of holiday and express points. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's a pretty cool lifestyle though, actually it was, uh, I mean, it, you know, at the time, yeah, or shoot, it would have been like my oldest son was born in 10 in 2010. So, um, you know, if that, yeah, probably like 2008 to 2012, I was doing that literally once a week, I would do that every week. And, um, it was, cra- I mean, I got really lucky on the nursery thing too. Cause like when I started, it was the hangover from the late nineties, early two thousands vineyard boom. There wasn't anything going on 
um, which was also good to like get to know everybody, um, learn the territory and all that, learn the business. And then, um, I mean, I got super and fortunate. Kind of start at the ground floor, right? Because like there wasn't yeah. anything happening. You didn't care because you didn't come from when the times were good. So you were like, Hey, as this comes along, I'll be ready for it. Yeah. I didn't know any better and all that. Like, um, the, uh, um, so yeah, so yeah, I started, started with that and then, uh, sideways hit. And then, I mean, I was in the prime area for the Pinot Noir boom and it was nuts. Like, I, I mean, there were years there, like I, I, we could, every bud of Pinot Noir that we got off of mother block was sold and grafted. Um, it was insane there for a few years, um, on the whole Pinot boom. And, uh, I remember the year that Pinot overtook Cabernet for the number one variety at the nursery which like the nursery owners were like pinot like of all the things like we're doing this more than anything else I mean, it was yeah it was nuts and dealing with it from like trophy projects that's one thing i like about actually about still doing the nursery thing is like one day i could be working on you know some retirement trophy type project and some real high-end real estate area to then the next day i'm working on a project that's going to be end cap grocery store wine and there's so much that can be learned from both sides that you know it's uh um it's cool and like just every so much every day being different you know you have any idea how many acres of vineyards you've been responsible for supplying the material to plant um so i've never done the math on the amount of acres over the years um i should actually i mean think about it probably could figure what just like a thousand uh, like, acre would be like a conservative yeah it ends up being like I, I think i do like um what was it 1089 for density i think that's like eight five and that ends up being kind of the average between the high density folks and then the the big players that still do 11 by 7 and stuff yeah um but uh i know that like i think i account for like one in five grapevines purchased in the country myself and not outside the nursery like based on the market share so that's one thing with like you know when you get your uh invoices from the nurseries there's always those like nursery taxes on there yeah so all that stuff gets shared actually and we get to see how much money the state brought in at that point yeah yeah it's public information so every year i can look at what the total amount of taxes collected were and my volume and figure out what uh um how it shakes out but uh, it's usually about one in five and you know i think there's seven of us nurseries um, but, uh, yeah, for my, my clientele specifically, not just the nursery. Um, I think I, I think I get, I count for almost one in one in five, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty crazy. It's nuts on the stuff to see on how it's grown too. And like, even now with, I mean, even it's nuts right now on the stuff that we're doing in COVID on the amount of planting we're doing and shipping, like we're doing so much redevelopment, so many, like we're at that spot now that all those vineyards from the late nineties, two thousands, all are needing to get tore out and redone. Um, whether like the varieties changed, the spacings changed or with viruses and diseases that have, you know, been vectored around through the years. Like, um, yeah, it's still like no slowdown. So, right. so in terms of uh, what, what, what kind of trends are you seeing on that side, like in development, right? Like, I mean, we talked about sort of like cab was king and then there was this massive Pinot boom. Like what's, what's happening now? What are you seeing? So, um, yeah, like it's still a sizable amount of cab and Pinot going out the door, but there definitely is a hangover from that. But then there's certain areas though, like 
what else are you supposed to plant in the Napa Valley? Because like no one's been able to come up with another variety that is economically viable for the growers. Um, I mean, at what point that at some point it has to pop, but there's you know there's really no alternatives right now. Um, you know, we're seeing so Chardonnay has definitely come back big. Um, you know, but Chardonnay was the first one to hit big in the late '90s, so it makes sense that it would be first. Um, you know, we're doing more unique varieties than ever before, um, which is, uh, that's always tough for when I have to talk with the higher ups at the nursery and all that. And they're like, you really want us to put this much mother block of gamay in? And it's like, no, gamay is a real thing now. It's not a, it's not a fad. It's here to stay. Um, so like all that stuff, um, you know, I'm big right now on Italian varieties. I think Italian varieties are going to come back. Um, we got to get to... The which one? I said Toraldigo. That's what I'm about. Yeah. Toraldigo. Um, I mean, but Sangio. Um, so the one thing that's amazing with Italian varieties is they are the most. So here's one thing that I think is that always really frustrates me. Is it like can you guys? Do you guys source any fruit outside of the family holdings, or do you guys do? do you do okay. Yeah, we do. So it's it's a it's it's a Maryland project. So we actually work with like eight different vineyards throughout the state of Maryland. Okay, so. Um, so the one thing that always baffles me is the how adversarial it can get from time to time between the vineyard owner and then the winery buying the fruit and how like it, it's one of those things too like it's uh it's way more adversarial than it should be like you know i think the the vineyards might be you know the vineyards have a tough time understanding what we have to go through moving a bottle of wine and how like price sensitive our consumers are but then we need to have an understanding of what it costs really to grow grapes and all that stuff. And, you know, some, sometimes stuff I hear coming out of winemakers with requests that they have for their vineyard owners and managers, it's like, you know, they want you to do all this super intensive farming, but you aren't willing to pay a dime more for the fruit. Like, don't like, you gotta, we gotta figure out some middle ground where, cause if the farmers can't pay their bills and then you know, we need to be able to buy fruit at an affordable rate where farmers can still pay their farming costs and pay, you know, and have like a successful farm, but then we can still maintain our pricing and, you know, everything works on the store shelves. Like it, it's, uh, um, it's pretty know, simple if you reverse engineer, like the consumer experience at the grocery store. Exactly. You know, and, uh, um, and so with that sort of thing in mind, like we've actually, for California, we've, hung our hat on uh two varieties that are not very uh friendly for that whole process like you know pinot noir is never going to be a super successful it, the the vines that variety just doesn't yield enough at a quality level to where you know it it makes any sense um and then uh so like i mean it's classic right and you know how these like as pinot was booming they were everybody was complaining about all the bad merlot out there because everybody had planted merlot in bad areas and now we have all this pinot noir out there in areas you shouldn't have pinot noir the stuff doesn't even taste like what true pinot noir should taste like uh, a lot of times and it's just this like you know manufactured sort of grape and all that and it, but it's never going to it's either going to be that way or it's going to be too expensive for your general consumer because you know, it needs to be a $35 plus bottle of wine, really. If you're going to, you know, that, that equation about like the hundred times your bottle price should be your ton per, uh, uh, or price per ton. Yeah. You know, like that, that is a, like a really like 
simple formula that is, I think, very true. Or like, you know, it's all the time. Um, and so, um, you know, and it's just like, yeah, it's never going to. Yeah, so for our listeners, right, if you're paying 3000 bucks a ton for Pinot from a marginal site, you got like, you can't make that work on less than 30 bucks a bottle, for example. So, so and then like Cabernet is kind of the same way. Like, Cabernet is a little bit more friendly than Pinot, but you know, um, it's at least closer, I think. Um, and you can get better yields out of it. Right. So like the quality suffers, but you can push it a little bit harder. You can get better yields out of it, but also you have a variety then that is very affected. You know, it's a later ripening variety can be very affected by virus issues and things that are tough to get around. Um, you know, just with the amount of acres that are out there and all the pests that we have to deal with. Uh, also like the fungal stuff, like, I don't know if you guys have to deal with, or I mean, I'm sure you guys have to deal with like Utypa and all the, like the wood diseases back there. Like we have to deal with that here. And like, you know, is there anything worse for getting Utypa than Cabernet and having like early die off to where the vineyard sort of peaks at 15 years and never, you know, it, it's like, I mean, there's companies out here literally that do their, when they're establishing their vineyard that are doing their budgets off of a 15 year vineyard, which, you know, we like, ultimately that, used, that used to be a 30 year thing. And really like, you know, it should be a 50 year investment, you know? And, uh, so then kind of going back to the Italian stuff, like Italian varieties literally are the best from what I see the best economics on the way it works. You can get, you can do very high, you can keep very high quality at a higher tons per acre. Um, and the, you know, they're like varieties that are relatively less inputs in the field for the farmer. Um, you know, like they can, you can pay a, a grower 1500 a ton for the fruit and it like they're able to, everything works. It works for all levels of the chain. Um, you know, and, and some things like that. And the other thing too, is like, we're getting the style of what the drinkers are wanting. You know, they're wanting lower alcohol. They're wanting higher acid wines. Um, I mean, there's still that camp that likes the higher alcohol, riper wines, but like, I mean, I think people are kind of in denial if you think, or, you know, like the, the, the movement back to more food friendly wines um, with, uh, you know, is there Italian varieties are going to do that, whether it be Dolcetto, Sangiovese, um, you know, Toraldigo, all this, you know, there's so many great options um, that, you know, it, it's, uh, it's tough for, for being a domestic uh, wine producer though, because everybody's all about variety, 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 rather than region first. That is something I like that you guys have always done with the labels with the uh, Maryland being always very prevalent on all the old Westminster stuff. Yeah, for sure. We've had, we've had many a meeting about that. It's like, is that a selling point? It's actually probably not, but it's a point of pride for us. So we'll just run it. And uh, I mean, eventually it'll catch on, I guess, or, or, or not. And that's okay too. Well, I mean, from my perspective, you guys have like the, you guys really have, you have the only East coast brand that's ever been able to like come into California and be everywhere. Like you guys are the, you know, and you know, and it was like, so like the old guard of Virginia would be like Barbersville. And so in like, you know, how many years has Barber, Barbersville been at it and they have a great reputation East coast and everything. And how, how long have you guys for the family, you guys have been at it for 10 years now or yeah. so like, and in 10 years, what, where old Westminster is as a brand, like thinking on as a brand on the West coast, yeah. being West coast winery, like, I mean, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. 
Well, we have the folks at uh, Rebel Wine Company to thank for that. They've done a, an awesome job. Matthew Plimpton and, and company have been really uh, tremendous advocates. And uh, yeah, they've, they've done really well. So, no, it's good. Uh, um, and so. like you, uh, we followed in your footsteps with the cans and that, that changed the game early on when there weren't many options. And, uh, you know, I, I think sort of coming to market with lower alcohol, really acid forward wines that were often made from, you know, hybrid grape varieties, even that are like, you know, historically so maligned. And you see this in the vineyard, uh, in, 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 uh, you know, the vineyard propagation business, you know, they've, they've long had been had this sort of like stepchild status. And, uh, you know, I feel like there's kind of a paradigm shift that's happening. I'm seeing it for sure. And it's, it, you know, it's not in the mainstream yet. It's on the fringes, but like, as the, it, domestic palate, uh, particularly in my experience among you know younger demographics, um, the the folks seeking out food friendly wines, r- conservative alcohol, acid forward, and products made in a more sustainable way, especially here on the East Coast. Like when you're looking for grapevines, you talked about how the Italian varieties require less inputs, and it still makes sense for everybody involved. Um, you know, I think here on the East Coast, the hybrids make a really strong case for that too. And, you know, hey, I, I love Gamay as much as the next. And I even bought some Gamay from Sunridge uh, in 2017 that we have planted here at Burnt Hill. So like, I'm all in. But then we also at the same time have a block on another hill where it's all Native American and mixed heritage varieties. And cool. uh, I, I think that that balance of things is something that we're really interested in exploring and uh, yeah, it just offers a product that doesn't have a lot of competition in the market. You know, we make a home vineyard Chardonnay that's really great, but it's like Maryland Chardonnay. And like in a world where Chardonnay is uh, abundant, you know, that's a tough value proposition to make. Like I've got a great $22 bottle of Chardonnay. It's like, who doesn't? So, yeah. um, you know, when you come out and you make something that, that lacks, you know, parallels uh it, it makes it a lot interest more interesting and easy to tell a story and it's like oh that's that cool quirky wine from maryland that you know i've never had before and i've never seen anything like it but hey it's pretty good and i'm, I'm into that so well cool. uh so what's the split between uh vinifera and and native grapes that you guys yeah, have right so now. it's really shifted for us uh so like in our so in 2000 uh 2011 when we planted our first vines on our farm um we planted 100 percent vinifera because okay. that's how you make the best wines and like i just really hadn't um i i wish i could go back and have a conversation with myself but at that particular time in my life i, I just didn't really I didn't see the world the way I do now. I didn't really understand the industry. Um, couldn't see the future. I thought that that's just how you make good wines and we're going to try and make the best wines. Um, so uh, 100% vinifera. And then, and then it shifted from there. And now uh, as, a, as uh, a, you know, a total uh, production, we're more than 50% hybrids. Okay. Yeah, so cool. we've re- we've really turned the corner. So like on our best sites, we we still plant vinifera. Um, sort of as a rule, there are exceptions, um, and then and then uh, you know uh, on some of our good sites, and then anywhere else, um, we're all native and uh, and hybrids. So like hybrids, in my experience, they like a little bit more water availability. They 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 uh, 
crave a little bit more nutrients. So like you might say like on the East coast, right? Like we look for sites that are gravelly with topography. We're dry farming, like just trying to stay away from water. Um, I know that's just like a totally different way to see the world from what, from, you know, your side of the country. But for us, you know, you're looking for a rocky hill type to dry, uh, hilltop to dry farm. And then anywhere where you have sort of, you know, swales or plenty of nutrients, we plant hybrids and they tend to do pretty well there. Um, especially when you're making, uh, you know, white wine style, um, even if it happens to be from a red grape, that's what we tend to do with, with our hybrids and just make, you know, really acid forward, you know, 10, 11, 12% tops ABV wines. Um, and, it, and it's just really versatile. A lot of our products in cans are hybrid based, et cetera. So we don't really market it as like varietally specific. It's more style specific and that just tends to work for us. So. Oh, nice. I mean, that's what, the other thing too, like with uh, the varieties that are out there and then, you know, like there's other varieties that are in the, in the works right now, like mildew resistant varieties. Um, yeah. Some of the VCR stuff. Yeah. So like those, like um, the French are importing varieties right now. We're going to start propagating here really soon. Um, and then also like UC Davis just, you know, released uh, Pierce's disease resistant varieties. So we can go to areas like Texas that, um, you know, have PD so bad they usually couldn't grow yeah. grapes, but uh, yeah. now there's options for people. And like, I, I was saying, like, well, I, I wonder, like, you know, 20 years from now, does every town have its like hometown winery the way that they have their craft brewery? You know, every town has its like signature craft brewery. Um, I, hey, I think so. Yeah. And I think that like, I think that like signature grapes are coming and they should come. And we should get to a point where we are in my opinion, breeding grapes that are, that are best suited to a particular climate uh, and particular style. And I know that that's still, you know, quite a few years away, uh, but I feel like this is kind of interesting stuff and, and you know a lot about it. Um, you want to explain to somebody who's listening to this, like when we're talking about like these VCR varieties or this idea of like new varieties that are, for example, downy mildew or black rot resistant, um, or cold hardy, for example, you know, these aren't genetically modified plants, but how are they, you know, how are they being created? Yeah, they're, um, you know, all hybrid uh, grapes where they're, you know, it's like uh, natural selection crossing of uh, the male and female parts of the, of the, of the grapes and all that. It's like literally like same process as if like my wife was a, a plant breeder actually. And, uh, um, before, uh, before all the kids and like specialized in lettuce and celery. And like the one thing that's amazing on the grapes, so it makes it so much harder is, you know, I think like for her, when she was doing lettuce, it would take her seven years to have a stable variety that was consistent year after year on lettuce. Whereas like with grapes, it's a 20 year process. Um, you know, before we and really maybe it's even 20 years before you realize it's not right. Yeah, exactly. Um, cause like, that's one thing for the nursery, like we have a huge table grape breeding program um that uh um you know like all the candy varieties anybody that's ever had a cotton candy grape out there that you know that that came from sunridge that's that was a sunridge uh like a sunridge patented variety and like all the like the candy like gumdrops and all that stuff it's all just natural selections of taking things like we're going to cross some muscatty sort of variety with some concord varieties with some other traditional varieties and try to come up with like new flavors and all that and we the thing really can apply 
I keep making the pitch every year, like, when are we going to start doing our own rootstocks? That's one thing I, I want to do. Um, cause there's definitely some holes in the rootstock thing right now. The, um, I was like, well, why don't we just take some of that and like try to work on a few new rootstocks that we can just cross and just make some of our own hybrids. And then, yeah, going in like, especially too, like as more wineries and regions come up, yeah. Like, you know, Virginia tech, does, does Virginia tech have a breeding program there? With they, do, the, they do. Um, as I understand, uh, I've, I, I don't want to talk out of turn because I, I, I'm not intimately familiar with their, with what they're doing, but I've been a part of a couple of conversations that are actively happening. And there is an effort to push the university to do a lot more than they're doing right now. And even kind yeah. of how I had mentioned, develop some varieties that are specific to the mid Atlantic region, because we have some unique conditions that are a little bit different than you, right? Like you had mentioned, like you type of being such a big problem for you guys. That's not really our primary concern. Like when, but, but we have plenty of our own issues and we should be looking at trying to breed varieties that are, that are cold hardier, for example, um, so that we don't deal with so much trunk splitting and crown gall, which sort of drives so many of our problems. And really trunk disease is what, you know, shortens the life of a, of a vineyard first and foremost. Yeah. So, um, you know, but this whole like breeding program to my mind is really cool because, you know, unlike genetic selection or genetic modification, where you go into like a strain in DNA, you figure out, what where the the weak links are so to speak that are creating these you know problems that you're seeing in the field and you sort of cut and paste and chop them out what they're doing with these new programs is they are essentially um you know identifying those those problem genes and then and then just breeding crosses thousands of times and going in and finding natural combinations that don't have that particular problem. So really what's happening now in the breeding programs is they're just fast forwarding, you know, millennia of natural selection and they're doing it in a matter of months, which is super cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that all that sequencing stuff that they can do. It's, it's cool. I mean, yeah, how much faster they can, uh, they can get there. So, I mean, we even for like new varieties and stuff, getting them introduced to the country, we're able to do that process and like speeded the thing up. Like what used to be five years is now, you know, it actually could be faster, but they still do some of the old school stuff to make sure that, you know, they're not just totally uh, trusting the technology. Right. Yeah, for sure. So um, do you think like in these, do you think that like the varieties and wines that ultimately result from these type of projects lack, you know, soul, for example? Um, no, I don't think so. Like, I think the soul part needs to come for the person that actually is like growing the grapes and making the end product in wine. Um, I think that's really like this, you know, I don't necessarily know like if the, yeah, if the breeding process really like, you know, does that take anything away from it? I don't think it takes anything away from it. I think like, you know, that, that the, the projects aren't necessarily that great. That's one thing like, even when I'm like, talking about wines and stuff, I try to see how long I can get talking about the wine before I ever actually tell people what grape is in it, you know, cause you know, it's uh, the soul of the project really is that, you know, the person that grew that, the place that it was grown, um, the person that made it and like how they chose to make it. Um, you know, I think that's the more main part to the soul of the wine versus what actual grape it is. For so. sure. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Uh, something else you, you'll probably think this is interesting. Um, I do. Uh, we are taking cultivated varieties and crossing them with uh, 
Native American wild females, if you will, uh, that live in the edge of the forest around our farm. So uh-huh. creating new varieties from seed that have like biological roots here. Um, and like, who knows, uh, most of the results will probably be really trashy, but, you know, hopefully at some point we can come up with, you know, one result that happens to be, uh, you know, really interesting. And, uh, you know, it is at least in part from here, which I, which is, you know, something that I'm, that I'm really cool trying to do. That was one. So like, uh, I mean, are you guys actually doing it in like a lab setting or you kind of getting, no, so um, I got to give some props here. Um, there's a guy in Virginia out in the Shenandoah Valley. His name is Cliff Ambers. He's a friend of Lucy. I think you know Lucy Morton. Yeah. And uh, that's how I met Cliff originally. And uh, he is, uh, I mean, he's he has a beautiful mind. He is just like a really remarkably smart person. And uh, so uh, I think he's like formerly, uh, he, he's a geologist um, by like, training. Um, but like plant breeding is, is his thing now. And, uh, no. So basically what he's doing is during bloom, for example, you take some Chardonnay or another variety that, that tends to bloom early because a lot of the native, you know, a lot of the native varieties bloom early. Um, so he'll take some Chardonnay, go out and identify wild vines that are in bloom as well, basically mark them and he'll take and literally just paint them like a, uh, like a paintbrush with the pollen and then immediately put a wax bag and a twisty tie over the cluster that's flowering that he just, uh, that he just pollinated. And then he'll mark them like what he pollinated with, et cetera, et cetera. And then you come back like two weeks, three weeks later, um, after fruit set and you take it off and then you run it all the way through. And, um, because of, you know, if the results are self fertile, then, you know, that it was pollinated with vinifera. So um, that's often how like you'll basically go back and sort through with, with you know, but basically you got to bring a lot of stuff up from seed and it's a pretty like uh, rudimentary process, but, uh, but it's super cool. Yeah, all those like, I always, so, um, you know, kind of going aside from like what the tech, you know, the scientist folks do and are they like, I'm really intrigued with like that, um, you know, Randall Graham was doing that vineyard from seed where he was taking like all the Mediterranean varieties that he was into and then taking, you know, basically taking the seeds and growing from seed and seeing which ones that crossed, like turned into being viable plants and all that. Yep. And I was actually like, I was thinking about it because, you know, everybody, every winery has a place where they put their pumice out and, you know, in that area, you typically have some volunteers that start growing from time to time. I was like, what if we just took the volunteers from the pumice pile area that we always have a few of, um, and then basically we're going to dig those up and transplant them. And then like, I could take them over to the nursery and have the guys that do the tissue culture stuff at the nursery. Like we could replicate a few of them. And then like, maybe that ends up being a variety. And it's like this variety that came from, you know, the stuff that we have at our place. Or- I see. I was thinking you were just going to like literally lay out a new block and like field plant, just like transplant oh. straight from the pumice pile. Just like a total. <laughs> well, the one thing though is when you have those pumice pile vines, though, like, like some of them are so much stronger than others of those volunteers. Yeah. So it's, it's like a survival of the fittest right there on like which ones can live in the pumice pile uh, yeah. area. Um, so like my uh, business partner on Fabulous, Kurt was Sonsley, she has this area that says uh, like barrel washing area. That's like a little water collection thing, but it's it's right off of his crush pad. And he always has 
a bunch of volunteers that grow out there along the creek uh, next to the winery. And like, we're, we're going to go, like, I'm going to go out there and just start digging these things up and transplanting them and all that. It's like, you know, he works with just a few different vineyards. Like, we're going to make, like, we know that it's going to be, it's exactly what Randall's doing with in a more controlled environment up in, in San Benito. Like, if they can grow right here, then this is going to be, could be a hardy vine. And who knows? Maybe it turns into something. Never know. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it's always nice to have. Uh, so that's the next pro- the, the volunteer project, right? That's next. So I got another good one too. I think you'll get a kick out of this one. Um, so uh, we have, I have a project that I want to do called the expensive landscape project. Okay. Um, and uh, so a lot of folks, especially like in California, Southern California, always want to have like backyard vineyards and all that stuff, you know, and they'll put like 40 to 200 vines in their yard of something. And like, I mean, in the end, you know, like it's tough enough to manage when you're dealing with like a few ton lots on stuff to, to make like high quality product. Like I always like, you know, it's always, it's tough to make wine that's, you know, it made in a, in a carboy, um, you know, like you gotta get to that barrel size and all that. I was like, I want to start like it's gonna be like a like a home gardeners club, and they see like if you have those vineyards when your stuff gets ready to harvest, you pick your whatever it be like fifty ton, fifty pounds or you know a thousand pounds for the bigger ones or whatever. Bring them up to the winery. We're gonna start this like big. It'll be like a like the the vinegar mother sort of deal where you just keep adding to it. Right. Let's keep like harvest long fermentation going. Like a Solera. Yeah, big. It'll be a giant Solera of everything people bring in. You know, like we can help them out because everybody always like wants some vineyard advice and everything too. like, you know, help them out with their vineyard. They want, you know, like advice for their vineyard, you know, and then also it ends up being kind of a hassle for them too once they go to the winemaking part of it. But then it's like they can be part of this big, like collaborative uh, wine that we do every year. It's expensive landscape wine, you know, and depending on what fruit you bring to the winery, like, you know, get wine back to everybody and everybody like, you know, have their friends over yeah my 40 vines out back we sent it up to this winery in paso field recordings it's just like fun uh super like you know could grow real organically between like a um you know it's like a viral thing on oh you got vines like oh do you still make do you make your own wine or no like or this expensive landscape club and and, because everybody like you know it's kind of like like a new status symbol (laughs) yeah well then like who knows we'll try to you know it could have like 50 varieties in it at the end and it's going to be just like you know this uh big you know conglomerate wine from all backyards through uh, california so and uh it'll have a ton of character because it'll have all these people that have touched a little bit i think it'd be good that's awesome so yeah, i dig it so um there's one question that i have to ask you uh on the show i'm calling it the brutal podcast you're probably familiar uh brutal has some you know, it, it's a term that's, you know, taking a life of its own, especially in the natural wine community. Um, but brutal is a word that uh, my sisters and I growing up always used to describe like a situation that was just like so awkward or so terrible that uh, that it was hilarious, or at least looking back, it was hilarious. So I'm wondering, like, if in your years in the business, if you have a story that's so that 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 you look back on now, that's just hilarious, informative in some way, and 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 uh, but at the same time, or in look back on the internet, just get fuzzy on us. I can hear you pretty well. If you can hear you there, me, Drew. Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, just got hey, fuzzy. Hey, buddy, can you hear me? Let's see here. 
Hey, buddy, can you hear me? Resume this. All right, we're good. We're good. We're good. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how much you missed there. Uh, I was just uh, I, I'm, so, so Austin, like your sister, you and your sister's talking about like brutal situations and uh, kind of going over like something that happened that was just an absolute brutal situation in the. Uh, yeah. But like now, it's hilarious when you look back. You got any good stories? Um, shoot. Oh man, I got one of like the the biggest uh, nursery messed up of all time. Yeah, like, let's hear it. I can I can I could qualify for brutal. Um, so there's a there's a large uh, vineyard farming operation in the San Joaquin Valley that uh, um, you know they uh, you know large scale type stuff. I'll, I'll keep the name out of it and all that, but they have. Um, uh, Actually, shoot, I got two of them, and it all happens with nursery stuff. Um, so uh, it's one of those things, like, when you make wines on that scale, like, and you have set formulas and all that stuff, it's like, how, you know, I need different grapes here so that we got to make sure all the red wines taste different kind of thing. Because there's, you know, it, it's, uh, and so um, basically, you know, the, the the operation would give us three guidelines. Like, they want something that's good color. Um uh, high tannins and, uh, and high yields. Like, and if you could have like two of the three of those, like it might be something that would go into production. So, um, I, I had a, a good, a, a buddy that, and, and I knew some people around here that had this, uh, random Portuguese variety called Suzao. Um, it was a kind of a way back California vine stuff. It was actually a thing that like the old Paul Masson, a brand used to do way back like um was that they'd make port out of it and stuff using the suzao grape and it was like this stuff will be perfect like it um you know it's got great color it's the darkest thing you've ever seen color wise it's inky inky dark but eating the berries and your teeth are stained like you've been you know drinking petite syrah for hours on end um and uh so amazing color you know Great. So, so in the, um, this was in 2011, 2011, 2012. It was right when Red Blotch came out, which, uh, you know, um, and so the way the whole process went down, like there's only like four vineyards of this old Suzao and all of it traces back to this one original vineyard up in the San Lucia Highlands that was from cuttings that they got from Paul Masson way back. And, um, we'd always called it Suzao, like, everything like and so um this was at the time uh it was right at the time when red blotch came out and so growers were real sensitive to it. and they 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 love this stuff like you know the sample wines i'd bring, bring them like everything like checked out everything they wanted to try they did a trial run of it it went from the trial run so they actually put it into production so it was like 80 acre block of suzao that was going in and so when red blotch came out, then it was like, all right, we need to start testing all these vineyards for red blotch. And, you know, and I only have four acres to choose from and I got to get enough wood to make, you know, 80,000 grapevines. And, um, so, uh, ended up only one of the four actually didn't have red blotch. So instead of getting all the wood that I was planning on getting, I only have, and the one vineyard that didn't have it was literally two rows of vines. And so we got all the wood and, 
figure out, all right, this is how many vines I can get. And they're like, well, we got to get our 80 acres in. You got to. And so I found an acre of Suzao up in Washington state. Um, and went and like went up, got the cuttings from Washington, brought them back down to propagate them. So like in the end, the, the vines, it was like of the 80,000 vines, you know, 30,000 of them came from my original Suzao that was from the old Paul Masson stuff. And 50,000 of them came from this block up in Washington. So, um, grow the stuff, you know, and, uh, do the order. The vineyard's looking great. Like it was planted early, great take out there. And there is just a line going across the field where it's like, we got two different grapes out here. Like there's something going on. And, uh, so I'm, uh, um, like, Oh shoot. And of all, you know, like, this is a major customer. Like, do we just, this is 80,000 vines. Yeah. So what's going on here? And then Davis has a DNA testing lab now. So, um, so we, we sent off uh, samples from both sides of the block to get DNA tested. And, you know, the, the Paul Masson stuff actually came back as, as Tempranillo, which the bizarre thing, this is the greatest clone of Tempranillo of all time. Like it's <laughs> superior. But then the ironic part of it is they were still set. Like, well, we were supposed to get Suzao. That was the variety. And I'm like, I've been showing you wine samples and bringing you Everything all the I've shown you has been Tempranillo has been Tempranillo this whole time. And they're like, well, we need Suzao. And I'm like, all right. Well, so like in the end, it was the smaller half of the vineyard that I had to redo. And, you know, luckily it was always one like, you know, didn't end up in like some random ditch in the San Joaquin Valley because of my screw up on this thing. But it was one of those things like, but it, like in tell, trying to, to explain to like i've been you know like i've been bringing you wine samples of this stuff for years you literally chose this variety based on data that i was giving you off of this clone of tempranillo not the suzao that came up from up in washington they wanted to have this suzao so uh we had to redo that whole thing right, that, that was, was a bait and switch that you could never pull off in any other way <laughs> yeah so that, that one was like oh i just like shaking they love suzao and they've literally never had it before yep. <laughs> never had it before, but that's what they wanted on the whole thing. Like, all right. So, um, so that, that was one. So both of my things come down to mixed varieties. Um, and so then the other one was, uh, the nursery started, um, doing the Iberian program and we were bringing varieties over from a nursery in Portugal that did vines in Spain and Portugal. And, uh, you know, so we're, you know, of all the things, like the program was a complete flop. Like literally there's been, there was two items that came out of that and it was the, um, their clone of Albarino ended up being like really superior in some Albarino trials. And it's the Portuguese spelling Albarino, uh, 639. And then the other one was the Monastrell 571, which we literally was like, Hey, we have this new Spanish program. They sent us a Monastrell, like, you know, you want to try it out to like mix up your Moved clones and all that. And so we started propagating it. The stuff comes into production. Everybody loves the stuff. Like, hey, you know, it's like, and there were some things that looked a little off on it, you know, but it was always kind of like associated as this like a Zinfandel Primitivo sort of thing where there's definitely some differences, but they're technically the same grape. And, um, you know, the leaves look exactly the same, but then it didn't have like that grayish color that Moved has in the canopy. It was brighter green, like Grenache. And and then the other thing too, uh, well, yeah, so in the end that, and, and then that went to being the only thing that we were propagating for years. 
because no one was then buying the old on top Movedras. Everybody switched over to buying the Spanish one. Um, and yeah, that turned into a whole fiasco because then DNA testing uh, came back on that and it was Moristel, not Monastrel, so Graciano. Um, that landed me actually. That, that was the one thing. Uh, that was more recent, wasn't it? That one's relatively recent. Yeah, because yeah. I like, feel like we went out with Lucy when I was with you. I, I, I met you for the first time, I think, in 2017 when we came out to see some vines that you were propagating for us. And I remember Lucy asking you to take her to see the Graciano. She was like, I need to see this Graciano. <laughs> yep. No, and uh, yeah, so yeah, we went to it that day and stuff. And, uh, um, you know, and yeah, so that, that I whole, remember we all looked at it and obviously I'm not an ampelographer, but you two agreed. It's like, how did this mess up make it this far? Like when you look at it, it's just not the same. So then the other thing though that's baffling on that is I had a customer in Paso that had bought the Monastrell, but also had bought Graciano the first year we had that stuff. And I actually buy fruit from that vineyard. Um, and so I was, I've been buying the Monastrell and the Graciano uh, for years. And I go out to that vineyard and those things look completely different. Like the, uh, the Graciano clone, like actually like the berries are so big. It looks like Kunwa. Like it's just this giant. And then the Monastrell one, like has a more conical cluster. Like, you know, they don't look like the same variety. And I'm like, I've been looking at Graciano next to this Monastrell, those two things. And I haven't even gotten to figure out who knows what, if the Graciano is actually Graciano out there. Right. Uh, but as soon as you start sending sample tissue samples to the lab for DNA, like our entire world will shatter. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like, and yeah, it, oh, what a fiasco on that thing. I mean, and then like it gets, you know, a couple of winemakers got some good press going out of it. Then I started getting calls because people want to do articles like ended up on. And then like, so I get a call from uh, Esther at the Chronicle. And not only does like Esther's editor end up like really liking the article and the whole thing going on lands me, I ended up on the front page of the Sunday Chronicle for the wine and food article standing on there, holding up a cluster of, of the, uh, Monastrell versus that like bigger buried, uh, Graciano. Um, and I'm like, how does this, like, right, we're literally marketing a mistake, <laughs> really marketing a mistake. I'm like, and that was one too. And then I get the list of all the customers and I like, you know, had to do all the phone calls, do the awkward conversations with everyone. Like, so here's the deal. Like Davis Reed DNA tested this thing. It's, you got to call it Graciano, but it was not known as Graciano beforehand. So like anything that's already made that like what's done is done. That It's Monastrell moving forward with Graciano, you know, that's, and Oh, like, and that was one of those things too. Like, you know, it was just like, is it like, when's the phone call going to go down to like, somebody wants to sue me or sue the nursery. And like, how much do I, you know, like, it was just, Oh, it was the way that it took off though and turned into this whole thing though. Like, um, well, and then I wonder too though, and like, it just gets so viral and word of mouth. I'm like, Oh, somebody's got this hot clone of something. Like there was a there was a, a prank played by one of the guys that's like the main uh, um, winery equipment mechanics here locally on the Central Coast, and he in a winery did a prank on a bunch of guys in Paso, saying that he went over to France and he was in Hermitage and uh, um, that he found out what the program was that Shav programs into his press. It's like the Shav cycle, and then they wanted it. Then they like they did this whole 
prank with it to like see how long until he started getting phone calls from people like hey you know like what's up with this shop cycle like can you come by the winery and hook it up the shop <laughs> i mean the same thing happened probably for the 571 like hey oh there's this new clone of movet everybody's like really liking it like maybe only one or two people have it and before you know it like ugh. so i'm still actually taking care of that i was actually with a field grafter this morning um doing a fix on on because the other thing too it told people is like i'm not going anywhere like you know if you like the wine like, this it out, run it and it out. i'll fix it yeah you don't have to decide today if you want to graft it over to something else or want to switch the vines out like we'll, we'll switch your vines out we'll graft it over for you whatever you want to do like see how it goes and so like i think we grafted over like seven acres of it this year for a few different people but uh but that was one thing too like over the years since we've had that, it ended up being like, I mean, it was like 250,000 vines that were propagated of that. It was massive for a fringe variety like Movedra. Mm-hmm. And I just like, um, actually, I, I started doing the calls and doing one night when I was on the road doing the super loop. And I was sitting in the hotel in, uh, in Napa, just going through the uh, thing, like, you know, cutting it. I got to the point I was just doing the cut and paste thing. Like, this is what we got. It's the deal. You know, like, we're going to start with this email. We can talk tomorrow via phone, whatever we want to do. Like, uh, that was, uh, uh, yeah, that one, that's definitely brutal. brutal. (laughs) Yeah. So many, like the awkward conversations. Oh, so, um, yeah, we still like shoot, you know, and and then now we still have people that actually are buying it for what it is. Like, it's not like it's gone away. It's a, you know, it's almost like I don't know if it's a core like Passover variety, but it's actually really good in Passover Robles. It's like holds its acid really well. Like, that goes back to kind of, I, I feel like that ties together what you said at the beginning, which is like when you joked about how you like to go as long as you can without telling people what the actual grape variety is, because it's almost like the stories and like that human experience and like working the land and like creating this bottle of wine goes so far beyond whether it's more bad or Graciano. Like that is almost, that really is secondary. You know, obviously if it, if it doesn't work, then that's a whole nother problem. But like assuming it's viable, uh, then it's, then it's a cool story. I always say like, I, this is one thing too, like the amount of wineries that have popped up and all that stuff. Like I like it that you guys are doing your wines, like style driven versus variety and all that. Like, um, you know, like especially for me in, like in central coast, we have so many, so many Rhone grapes. Um, you know, and you go to wineries and it's like, well, this is my Grenache Syrah Movedra. This is my Syrah Movedra Grenache. This is my Moved with a touch of Syrah and Grenache. And it's like, yeah, the blends have changed, but there definitely is like the signature house style in all three of those wines. Like, could we have more wines where people just sort of like go the Rayos method where you have like, or, or like the Bordeaux folks too, where you have your tier one, tier two, and you know, whatever, however many tiers you want to go. But like, you make this wine that is the signature wine for your property. And, you know, cause it ends up being more of that. Yeah, it's like, what is it? It's the best I got. That's what I can yeah. do. Yeah. Yep. So, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll go more of that old world approach at some point, but, uh, it's probably going to be a while. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so what, so what's next for you? Uh, next for me, um, 
we're messing around. So we got a couple things going that are new that I'm excited about. So uh, other thing too, that I didn't talk on the brands is I also have a hard cider company, which you guys do some cider yep. as well. Yeah, um, so, uh, I 10 city cider company that I do, it's part of fabulist. Um, and we are transitioning. So the one thing that, I mean, you guys are, it's amazing on the East coast with all the old orchards and the heirloom varieties that are planted back there, you know, and for the West coast, all we have are, are, uh, dessert apples or you're eating apples. Um, we have, we don't have cider varieties typically out here. Um, and so, uh, I got a couple growers to plant high density, uh, you know, single trunk apple orchards, but using the, you know, the old school varieties like the Pippins, the Arkansas Blacks, uh, um, you know, different russet varieties uh, and all that. And then like, could we combine those old varieties with like this new modern higher density orchard and then, you know, and grow So I have, we have one in Paso Robles and then we have one in the Happy Canyon uh, that we just put in of uh, San Inez. Um, and so then we also have to deal with varieties that can be lower chill hours because we don't have the true winter chill hours like you have back east. Um, but uh, we got actually for Fourth of July weekend, we're re- releasing our first two orchard ciders um, from Paso. So excited about that. Um, the uh, um, so yeah, that's new. The other thing too, like kind of going back to the Italian stuff, I've gotten really infatuated with Nebbiolo. Um, and so I got, uh, Nebula is going to be a tech, the Wonderwall label now, cause that part of it calling Wonderwall, Wonderwall is that invisible barrier between you and your dreams. And there's certain things like when I got into all this, I still go back to liking Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And I think those varieties, you know, even for what I've done, you know, knock Pinot Noir with being this luxury item, um, like Pinot represents really like one of the biggest things about what is why wine is so much cooler as an alcoholic beverage than other things out there. Just like the little nuances that like literally if you go from one side of the driveway to the other side of the driveway, that subtle soil difference is going to show more than any other variety. And like, you know, the, the nuance and how like specialized wine can be versus, you know, like a grain based alcohol product or anything like that. Um, you know, and uh, so Wonderwall has kind of turned it's it's morphed a little bit from being this like you know pinot label with a little bit of shard to like all the things that I kind of put on a pedestal that are sort of my fanboy uh, wines um so uh, I've added went to uh uh France a few years ago for the nursery to tour Antov and we did some days with the ag extension folks and I had this like just a sort of epiphany sort of day in uh hermitage and actually like not like we finished the day hiking the hill and all that which is unbelievable but like i was really blown away by the village level sort of wines on the flats down in grow hermitage and like they you could make a straw that had some elegance to it and like didn't have to be like a cocktail wine that um you know and uh so we added Syrah with the, with the 18 vintage and then 19 we're adding Nebbiolo to the Wonderwall lineup. Cause it's like, can we make something from California that is totally inspired by those, you know, wines that I tend to put on a pedestal and, uh, have something that, you know, like can hold its own. Um, yeah. we're never going to be that, but like, you know, we want to have a wine in the end that definitely like people, you know, like 
you can tell that there is some like inspiration behind it with that. Um, so yeah, Wonderwall is turned into the fanboy sort of wines. Um, so I got that, that Nebula. So I got like the newest thing for field recordings. Um, and then, oh, I got another new one too that uh, did a joint venture Oregon project with my buddy Chase uh, Healy from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Chase was the founder of Prairie Artisan Ales and then he sold Prairie and has a project called American Solera. And I think like, I mean, Chase was like on a forefront, like of this new wave of sour beer producers, but like his sour beers drink like sparkling wines, like the balance of the acidity and textures and everything like makes great product um, and, and stuff. So we, had, he and I have been messing around back and forth. Like I did a road trip actually to Tulsa and took him grapes one year. And then we brought the wart back and did some uh, cider beer hybrids with the wart that we drove back then across country. Um, and then we kind of been joking around cause he's been wanting to do a house wine or you know, kind of house wines and stuff. And it was sort of weird how it like, and he's a random character too. Like, and, um, we both have pretty unique personalities and all that stuff. And it's like, you know, it's so backwards that it makes sense that a brewer from Oklahoma and a winemaker from central California makes wine from grapes from Oregon. Yeah. Like, it, it makes more sense than you might think. Um, that's <laughs> like tagline we put on the back of the bottle. So that's called American recordings. We just are getting ready to release that really fired up about that. Um, so, um, um, yeah, so new Wonderwall, American recordings and then orchard cider. So it'd be like, I think the new, Oh, and then the other thing that we were doing now, and it's this, I gotta, I'm going to blame you for is cause you guys are killing it out there in the Paquette world. And, uh, so I made some Paquette this last year that I was, uh, I'm, I was really happy with it. We, we used it from the pumice that we use for our orange wine for skins and we call it Tang. Um, and, uh, I've seen it, but it's a unicorn. It's tough to get your hands on. The, uh, I did it. I literally, my distributor in Kansas city, Missouri called me and was like, can you make a paquette? I'd never made one before. And was like, uh, yeah, he was like, you make this paquette. He like gave me, and it was like, he's like, you know, two pallets. We'll go through two pallets in Kansas city. I'm like, all right. Like I've never made one of these before, but I'll try it. And, uh, so I think we're going to keep rolling with Tang this year. See where that goes. Cool. I think it's pretty cool. Like, yeah, you guys were just in that, was it Wine and Spirit just had us in an article. It was uh, Wild Ark and you and Field Recordings and uh, who else was in there? Oh, I think uh, the gal from Madison that has that American Wine Project. I think she was in that article. Um, there's a few. I mean, there's only like, was there maybe 10 of us making Paquette right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, it makes so much sense though. Like, I mean, it, it, it's coming, it's going to be, it's going to be a thing for sure. Cool. I, hey, sweet. I, I'm, you know, uh, um, yeah, I'm curious to see where, where Just the make cat from all your pumice. How many, how many cats are you guys making now? You guys make at least all three. All Orange all one. We make all of them. Yeah. There's like some hybrid ones that you're doing too. That's like part Paquette, part, like sparkling yeah. or sparkling base. Exactly. And we're blending it back with, we're blending them back with wine too, to make like nine, 10% ABV, like, like think like 50% Piquette, 50% wine. Um, and, and basically that's just brings enough sort of guts and intensity that it drinks like, you know, it's just a, it's a patio pounder. So it's yeah. low alcohol. And then for us, you know, it's, it's obviously resourceful, both in terms of like, you know, your, your uh your inputs um but also like financially it makes a lot of sense so like the ability to like stretch 
some chamberson and you know from one ton of grapes being able to yield you know uh, uh, 250 cases of product is like is pretty sweet you know and like uh, uh, you know a fraction of that ends up in your red blend but the lion's share ends up in this piquette program yeah now you guys have invented a category who is uh so uh who was was it one of your sisters or you who wanted to do the piquette uh so, does, so I, I got to give props to Wild Arc. Everybody knows, um, you know, that they really made the first one. And like the first time that, that we had bumped into that, we had actually uh, been hydrating some pumice and just trying to make base for spirits. Because I have a friend in Howard County, Maryland, that's like 30 minutes from where we are, uh, that owns a distillery called Lost Ark. And um, so like I, we were, I was just sending basically any wine that we screwed up, we were doing a lot of native fermentations, anything that was just too volatile or, you know, other had a problem. Otherwise I would send to him, they would distill. And then we would use that for fortification. We started a cocktail program at our tasting room. That's built entirely on, you know, basically our brandy. And then, you know, we aromatize the brandy in a lot of different ways. So it drinks like gin or whatever. Um, and then that's kind of when we re- and then the first time that I saw, um, you know, Wild Arc Piquette, it was just like immediate. I was just like, this is a no brainer. Like in terms of like, I mean, we have, you know, I don't know, hundreds of tons of, of pumice sitting here, you know, and it's like, think about like what we could do with that volume. So, I mean, we started with just like a couple of de- dedicating a couple of tanks to basically a Solera method. So when the press is empty, the pumice goes in and you just keep adding pumice and water and it just kind of ferments and rolls. And then also we just had these like, you know, white IBC totes, like shipping to totes. And at one point, I mean, we had a friggin' like pyramid of these things, just a pile of like fermenting totes. And like some of them turned out awesome. And some of them were just, you know, distillate based garbage. And, uh, you know, and like, we really figured it out. Like, uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's science to all of this. And like, I mean, it's, it's a real pH sensitivity issue. Fortunately at our farm, like we're on well water and we have hard water. So like our water base is 5.3 pH, which is like pretty sour water. Um, but that oh, really, wow. that really helps us with like our dilution ratios without driving our pHs through the moon. You know, like if you're working on like municipal water, that's pH buffered to seven, that's a big difference on how much water you can add before you like really ruin your microbial stability. So it's like, it's kind of a funny thing that like we're, that we're figuring out, but, um, and, and wow, that's a trip. Uh, I didn't even think about that with the city water. That's a, um, you know, or all, all that, the whole thing with having the, the yeah, you uh, might, I mean, like, I mean, honestly, if you're, if you're working on water that's buffered, you might have to acidulate that water back. I mean, if you think about it, right. Like, I mean, it's, it's being, you know, I mean, it's being buffered to start. Yeah. Um, so you might just need to bring that pH down in the water. Fortunately, ours is starting at five, three. So, you know, it's less of a problem, but yeah, if you're on some sort of municipal water, yeah. Like, I mean, just managing the pH is going to be an issue. Wow. Uh, no, that's, uh, yeah, the Paquette thing's been, uh, uh, the one thing that was interesting on the stuff that we did, cause we, I made it off of, uh, skins that had gone like 60 days of extended maceration. So we ended up like our thing was actually having to add more table wine to it to get it to the stable alcohol level um to get it to seven percent because we were you know yeah we came out at like four percent so yeah uh, for sure and then i mean another thing is like on all of your whites whether you're you know d stem crush whole cluster press whatever um 
pre-fermentation, the best piquettes are made with fruit that you've, in, in our experience, fruit that you're pressing. And like, if you whole cluster press some fruit, leave, yeah. you know, only press it to, you know, whatever, 1.7 bars, like leave the hard press fraction in and then yeah. hydrate that. And, you know, that press fraction staying in with the fruit, like that's a reduction in yields in your, in your wine for sure. But it really, yeah. it really helps your piquette out a lot. Now that was one thing too, like, uh, cause ours, ours drinks more like a, like a hard alcoholic tea. Like it's definitely like a grape skin sort of tea with our, our character or having it. Cause we went, we did a festival in Palm Springs in December that, uh, um, Oh, what's his uh monte rio sellers that uh, was it patrick uh capiello was pouring his with the monte rio label and where it was you know it was hydrated whole cluster pressed fruit and all that it makes a huge uh a huge difference on the whole thing so yeah, for sure yeah, curious to see about you know where it goes like uh, it's a whole new category that's going to evolve you know it's like right now it's just like i don't know it's grapes and water but like as you try different things eventually you hone in on what works and what doesn't yeah uh oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. hey, um, how do people connect with you? How do people find your wine? Uh fieldrecordingswine.com. Um we are reopening our tasting room on July third. Um uh in Paso Robles in a little area called Tin City. Um industrial park in Paso. It's like uh basically it's gotten so hard to open a winery out in like the agricultural area that everybody's all like the new producers in the area have come to Tin City. Um, and, uh, um, in this little industrial, so one square block, you have 18 wineries, cider house, brewery, distillery, uh, a couple of restaurants, sheep's milk, ice cream, creamery, uh, pasta factory, like all kinds of like artisan goods. And it's all made in this one little block. So you can cut, if anybody's in Paso Robles and come to Tin City, yeah, we're there. Um, yeah, fieldrecordingswine.com, Andrew at fieldrecordingswine.com or grapevinejones at gmail.com. I still use my old Gmail that I've used for, uh, yeah, <laughs> I love it. Um, so, um, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, looking forward to having summer solstice next year coming back. That's right. 2021. <laughs> well, cool. Hey, it was really fun catching up with you. I uh, appreciate your time. If you ever want to trade some wine, I'd love to send a case your way and, uh, and, uh, you know, trade, I got to check out some of the Wonderwall wines and, uh, you know, the cider you're making. It's pretty cool. cool. No, I'll send, I'll, uh, I'll send a box your way. Cool. Cool. Likewise. Well, uh, that's it. Andrew Jones, Field Recordings. Thanks for your time. Uh, everybody that listened, thank you. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, consider subscribing via iTunes, Spotify, or whatever you're into. And, uh, that's it. We'll be releasing a new episode, uh, I think, once a week. We'll see how this goes. But, uh, yeah, that's the night. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate your time, buddy. Good luck. All right. Take care.